Well, hello, everybody, and I'm excited because we are, last week we started a brand new series uh, about how to pray effective prayers, powerful prayers. We finally got us a title even. We're calling it the Praying Church because we're learning how to be the praying church that God has called us to be. And I've already heard from a number of you that um, last week's message struck us in some in some beautiful ways and and some of us it struck us in some challenging ways because we're talking about prayer in a way that's it's not safe this is a little bit more dangerous we're talking about dangerous prayers aren't we yes we're venturing into the world of mystery here i think in mystery is where you find the miracles that was pretty good. I'm going to make that a t-shirt. I just came up with that. Right? Out there in that world of mystery, that's where the miracles are. So we're, going to, we're, we're being a little bit dangerous here. So just keep your seatbelt on, but we're going, to, we're going to be okay because we believe the Spirit of God is leading us. Last week, we talked about the urgency of prayer, in particular, this kind of prayer that um, actually calls upon the Lord to move in miraculous ways, the kind of prayer that's about changing the natural course of events the kind of prayer that rewrites the story that we're in in real time. Because God, we, we discovered, God has just set up the world in this way. It, by His sovereign choice, He has set up the world in this relational way. He has put aside this reservoir of power for His bride, His people to use, to call upon, and to agree with Him that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get a part to play in that. So we don't take that for granted. I mean, that is a, a beautiful, beautiful privilege. We have a part to play in this world of actually making things come to pass. Now, God can do anything he wants, but there are certain things that we are finding that he actually is waiting to do until his people will partner with him in faith, in prayer. It's a matter of urgency. It gives us a sense of urgency with what we do when we pray. Today, I want to kind of continue this, but I want to talk another, about another vital element in our, in our prayer, praying effectively as kingdom people, and that is our prayers must flow from a place of honesty. Amen. Honesty. Because one of the most difficult things uh, for many of us to learn to do is talking honestly to God, what I'm calling praying without a filter. <laughs> praying without a filter. Um, I've said this before, but I think one of the fundamental core desires of the human heart of, of everybody I've ever met is to be fully known and to be completely loved as that fully known person. We all crave this. We, we want to be fully known and completely loved as that fully known person. To have somebody on the inside of your life uh, that, that just fully knows you and loves you anyway, isn't that like <laughs> the thing we all want, we all crave. It's got to be one of the fundamental drives of the human heart. We have this longing, I think, because we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of a triune God who himself lives in this relationship perfectly known with one another, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so we're created in his image, so naturally we long for this too, to be fully known and loved as such. And prayer for us human beings, is the primary way, from our end at least, uh, that we experience this being fully known by God. It's through prayer. Because for people, there, there really can be no communion or relationship without communication. For us, communion and communication flow hand in hand, doesn't it? 
That's how we get to know each other is through communication. And through this ever-deepening lifestyle of prayer, which is what we really all want. We all, you know, want to have this lifestyle of prayer. Don't you just like, man, I wish I had a prayer life. Not just, I wish I knew a couple of prayers, but I wish I had that lifestyle of prayer that I see like so-and-so have or that person. We want that. And through that, we gradually come to trust God more. When you step out in prayer, you come to trust in this God more, and you trust Him more and more with knowing the real us, because you kind of are exposing more and more of yourself, and, and that unsurpassable worth that you have to God, that, that how priceless you are to God, it becomes more than just like something some preacher told you, or that kind of knowledge you sort of know in your head. It becomes part of your identity, when that gets way down into your unsurpassable worth, you experience it way down inside. It becomes the core of your identity. The more you allow yourself to be fully known by God. But to the degree that we don't do this, to the degree that we hide who we really are from other people and from God, we feel isolated. That's just the natural effect of that. We feel unknown. We crave to be known, but the more we hide, the more we are left unknown. And we can't talk about praying powerful, effective, fervent prayers like we talked about last week without addressing one of the major roadblocks that we all run up against in our prayer life. This is a force, I'm telling you, it is almost as powerful as faith that can be devastating. It can work against our faith when it comes to our prayers. And it may not be the thing you think it'll be. Watch this short little video right here and you'll see it illustrated. Who did this mess? <laughs> Who did this? <laughs> Cody, did you make this mess? Murphy, did you make this mess? Maggie, did you make this mess? Somebody made it. Who made it? I love that so much. Poor Maggie. Anybody with dogs and you recognize that emotion, I, I, I know it too. Who made this mess? I love both of them look at Maggie. Oh, and you can see she's in pain. Like, there's, you know, there's this distress on her face and she just sort of like slowly backs away. I love it. It says something profound about all of us. And this idea of shame, shame is what blocks us from having honest relationships with people, but it can be a huge stumbling block when it comes to having an authentic prayer life with God. Now you would think, I mean, let's just be real. You would think that uh, the omniscient, all-knowing God that we know him to be, that he would be the last person that we try to hide something from. If we were just very logical beings, we wouldn't realize the absurdity of it. But the problem is, see, we get intimidated, I think, by this other attribute of God that we have told, we're told about it from, you know, the earliest of ages, and that is the holiness of God, right? There's this other attribute of God, his holiness, his otherness. And yeah, so we know, yeah, he's all-knowing, but he's also perfect, and we fear man, that kind of God must be really demanding. He must be disappointed with me just about every minute of the day, right? And so what do we do? 
We hide our mess like little Maggie the puppy. Maybe we made the mess. Maybe somebody made the mess in our lives. Maybe somebody did it to us. But regardless, we know that we are broken. We are far from perfect. And we know there's something off in the way we live. There's something wrong about us. Um, There's just something not quite holy. We know we don't measure up. We know it. And so that shame makes us want to hide our true selves. And, and you see this right in the first pages of the Bible, right? The very beginning, you have Adam and Eve, you know, created in this image of God, created, and it's, what do they do? They rebel against God. And then what is the first thing they do when they rebel against God? They hide. They hide from the omnipotent, omnipresent God. And they hide from one another. They behind, if you read the story, they hide behind excuses. They start blame shifting, right? They're hiding because it's an impulse that we have. When there's something wrong with us, we've made a mess of our lives or we've had a mess done to us, but we want to hide and we can all relate to that. And so what we hide behind is this false self. We hide behind the false self. We create this facade of ourselves that we show other people. And so we take the pain and we stuff it down. We take the wounds, we stuff it. We take the scars and the shame and we shove it and we stuff it. And, the, and, and in its place, we put up the facade of the confident self, the confident self, the successful self, the religious self, <laughs> the, uh, the got-it-all-together self, even the know-it-all and uber-righteous self, Right? It's our way of hiding. It's really just a facade. It's a facade. Because if people really knew the real us, we'd probably be rejected. They'd probably reject us. And so we keep up what is really a demonic cycle uh, of hiding and then suffering because we're never really known as we crave to be known, right? And so what happens, we bring this into our prayer life our spiritual life, our liturgical life, our our church life, religious life, which is all that does is ensure that those wounds that we have, the mess that we have is never going to be healed because a wound that is concealed can never be healed. There's another t-shirt, right? We bring that into our spiritual life and we keep those things hidden, shoved down. And so we keep our whole life under this woundedness because we won't bring it out of the closet to be healed and to let the light of God's love and the love of his people help to heal us. And what happens is anytime you you build a relationship on a lie, that is going to be a dysfunctional relationship, right? Anytime you build it on wearing a mask, you start that relationship out with a mask, a facade. It's dysfunctional from the very beginning. And one way religious people uh, compensate for not actually having an honest communication or communion with God is by piling on lots and lots of unwritten rules. And we pile on these unwritten rules when it comes to our prayers. And so you see that in any false relationship or social system that's built on, on uh, building a facade there are going to be a ton of rules that help keep that facade in place. Because how things appear is more important than how things actually are. If you find me any dysfunctional family, a dysfunctional church, dysfunctional social organization, whatever it is, and you will find a family or a church that where how things appear is more important than how things actually are. 
sometimes we even find it embedded right into our very doctrines when it comes to prayer. And we don't even, we don't even realize it, right? We get this idea that how things appear is more important than how things are. So we, we, it even affects the things that we say, we say out loud because it, it might be something that uh, affects our, our faith. These dysfunctional relationships or religious circles, what's ironic is they can appear very healthy. Uh, they can look healthy precisely because they're hiding everything that's real. And so uh, often really sick families, uh, sick churches, sick groups, ironically, can look really good. Sometimes their churches ha- ha- those churches have the most confident air of anybody around. Because you've got to, if you're going to have real relationships, it's going to be messy. Because I don't know about you, but I'm a human being. I'm not an angel yet, right? I'm a human being and real relationships are made with people that are human beings and that is going to be messy. It's part of reality. So if it's authentic, it's going to look imperfect. Authentic is going to look imperfect. Whereas in some churches, in some families, if it looks too good to be true, it's because it is too good to be true. Because everything that's not good is being crushed and shoved deep down. It's being hidden and it remains sick. So dysfunctional religious systems, they they often develop these elaborate rules, and sometimes they're unspoken rules, sometimes even without realizing it. It's why some prayer, you ever notice some prayer has like a sense of unreality to it? Um, It has all sorts of unwritten rules that go around, the right way to pray, the wrong way to pray, and and you don't really notice them if you're inside the system, Uh, but when outsiders come in, well, it seems weird to them. Because they see what is going on here. And often, why is it when religious people pray, it's like we develop a, a whole, our own like special tone of voice <laughs> and like a whole vocabulary that only, you know, it only happens when we pray. We're like, oh, thou heavenly father, we do beseech thee for thy blessings and bountiful supplications pour upon my blah, 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 blah. Right? Why is why do we do that? What is that? What is what is it about that? This special kind of religious language. Um, it's an odd language that you don't talk anywhere else with anybody else. It's religious, and and why do we do this? We do this because for far too many people, uh, it isn't prayer isn't part of a relationship with the Abba Father in heaven. It's actually a kind of a surrogate relationship. And we develop this surrogate relationship. And the rules are in place not to help you develop a genuine relationship with God, but to take the place of a genuine relationship with God. So we develop all these extra rules and extra words and everything like that. Um, and, and we encounter this. We, you know, you probably have too. You encounter, it might be, you know, based on your tradition or something like that too. But we encounter this with longtime Christians who've just kind of gotten into this sort of rut of, I got to pray this, this pattern and this way and everything, and I have to use the certain words. And it's just become the surrogate relationship that's in place of a real relationship. But I also encounter it, what breaks my heart is like brand new Christians too. And they're intimidated to pray. And you're like, hey, pray with me. And they're like, well, I really don't, I don't know. I don't know the words. I don't know the right, I don't, I haven't learned that spell, right? And it's like, oh, no, no, no. You just talk. You just talk to God, right? But that seems like too intimidating. You can't, surely it's not like that. Because in some area, in some areas, Uh, In some circles, it borders on magic. It really does. The way prayer gets, the rules get so meticulous. And I've been in conferences and I've been in places, I've been around folks who held that if you're going to pray for 
uh, have healing against certain kind of diseases. You got to pray this kind of prayer and you got to address this thing and you got you know, you to do it just right. And if you don't do it just right, then the person won't be healed. And, and you see, that's, you got to break the right generational sin that's on this sort of thing. And see, that's what magic is. Magic, the difference between magic and religion is, is magic is a bunch of spells used to manipulate the spiritual realm because there is no relationship. That's magic. Or if you're going to cast out this kind of demon, you know, you, need, you got to find out what rank of the demon it is, and you got to find out his name, and then if it's in the head, you bind it this way, and if it's in the stomach, you got to loose it. I always get confused. Are you binding it or loosen it? I don't know. But there's binding and loosen going on in there. But you got to, and you got to do all the hocus pocus just right, and sometimes you got to shake the smoke three times and say it in Latin. Make sure you do that because the demons really respect Latin. Um, and, and if you don't do it that way, if you don't get it just right, then the person is going to stay in bondage. Because God, according to this outlook, is like more interested in you getting the spell right, like he's a professor at Hogwarts, than he is developing a relationship with his image bearers and, a, and, and partnering with his image bearers to bring his will on earth to pass as it is in heaven. What I want us to see this morning, folks, is that kingdom prayer is not at all like that. Kingdom prayer is not like that. Scriptural prayer is not like that. God, who is the author of all that is, God trades in one commodity, and that is reality. God trades in reality. The kingdom is not less real just because some parts of it are invisible. It does not make it less real than this world we live in. It is more real. It is the ultimate reality. See, what Christ says is the ultimate reality. And so that is what we stand on. It is not less real, it's more real. It's all about, God is all about authenticity. God wants us, to, above all, to have an, he wants to have an honest relationship with you. He wants to have honest communication with you. Amen. Honest communication. What God wants is to commune with you, and then for us to be united together in a way that reflects our communion with him, so we can be authentic with each other. But it's all grounded in authenticity. God wants the real you. He doesn't want the religious you. He doesn't want the holier than others you, the pious you, the together you, the successful you. He's not interested in that. Because that's made up and it doesn't exist anyway. That's not the person he's in love with. Right? He doesn't care about the you that impresses man. He wants the real you. Which means... Yeah, he wants the insecure you. He wants the perverted you. He wants the screwed up you, the messed up you, the doubtful you, the abused you, the unfaithful you. He wants, if that's the you, he wants, that's the you he wants to deal with. Because that's the only you that actually exists. And that's the you he's in love with. It's why the Lord says to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Whew. See, if you're like, I don't, I don't, I'm not there. I'm, I, I haven't done anything sufficient. I haven't measured up. I haven't earned that way to talk to God yet. God's like, no, it does, no, you haven't. My grace is sufficient. That's all you need. My grace. Right? And his power is made perfect. It's not just maybe it'll happen even though you're not such a great person. 
No, my, my power is actually made perfect in your weakness. Oh. So Paul reacts to this word from the Lord, this idea that his weaknesses, his brokenness, whatever this is, it's not an impediment to his prayers. It's actually the catalyst for his prayers. And Paul has a breakthrough and says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, I am strong. Amen. He says, he, Paul comes, if you just saw that phrase, you'd just be like, well, that is a logical contradiction. But Paul gets it. When I am weak, that is when things happen. That is when the miracles happen. I am strong because God loves you as you are, and he wants to commune with the real you. He wants to commune today with the real you. The real you. He wants to partner with you through prayer to change this world in powerful ways, miraculous ways. And it's not through your strength. It's not through your piety. It's not through your, your perfection that you did everything right. It's not that you've got all the spells pronounced perfectly. With all your, you got all your messy emotions safely hidden away so it doesn't offend God. No, no, no. When it comes to kingdom prayer, faith is everything, right? We're a faith church. We talk about faith. Faith is everything. Well, faith is putting your trust in the Lord. Faith is putting your trust in God. And that means being honest and coming to God, even in your messiness. He's not interested in partnering with your false self because that false self, guess what? It doesn't even exist. So there's like nothing to even partner with. It's just an illusion. He, he, even if the real you is a little bit messy, kingdom prayers can look messy. Sometimes they look at a little bit like this. Uh, this is from a movie starring the great Robert Duvall. Check this one out. Hello, I yell at you because I'm mad at you. I can't take it. Give me a sign or something. Blow this pain out of me. Give it to me tonight, Lord God, Jehovah. If you won't give me back my wife, give me peace. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give me peace. <laughs> give me peace. I don't know who's been fooling with me. You are the devil. I don't know. And I won't even bring the human into this. He's just a mutt, so I'm not even going to bring him into it. But I'm confused. I'm mad. I love you, Lord. I love you. But I'm mad at you. I am mad at you. So deliver me tonight, Lord. What should I do? Now tell me. Should I lay hands on myself? What should I do? I know I'm a sinner and I want to know woman I have, but I'm your servant. Since I was a little boy, you brought me back from the dead. I'm your servant. What should I do? Tell me. I've always called you Jesus. You always call me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sunday talking now. This is Sonny talking now. Look at it. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. Anybody, anybody know the movie? The Apostle, yes. The Apostle. It, it's really a great, it's a very raw movie. Um, and and this, uh, this guy, Sonny, he's one jacked up dude. Um, I mean, he's a mess. I've known a lot of screwed up preachers, and he's right at the top of that list. And that's not why we admire the, the character here. He got 
what we admire is that he got one thing right and that he has an honest relationship with God. He has this honest relationship with God. He talked to God the way you talk to somebody that you trust, right? He strips off, this, uh, Sonny strips off the, the artifice and he lets God see him in his naked, raw self. That's not a virtue to be mad at God, but it is, a vir- it is virtuous to be honest with God honest with God. Some of us have never prayed an honest prayer in our lives because we're afraid. We're afraid that it'll, we're afraid of God. We're afraid it'll disqualify our faith, right? But if you're mad, be mad, right? If you're confused, Tell God you're confused. If you're doubtful, admit it to God. I'm doubtful about this. Lord, help my unbelief, right? If you've got bondage in your life that you kind of don't really want to get rid of, tell him, Lord, help me with this thing. I don't even know if I want to get rid of it. Don't just admit it to him because you're not fooling him anyway. He's the omniscient God you're talking to. Whatever's there, communicate that because that is real. And that is why in the Bible we find there's a lot of really screwed up sunny prayers, you ever notice that? You ever re- come across a passage and someone's praying and you're like, what on earth is that doing in the word of God, right? <laughs> There's some examples. I'll just throw a few up here. I was going to go through these, but I'll just let you look at them. A few examples on the screen from the Psalms. These are part of a, a group that I call worst prayers in the Bible, um, <laughs> but they're in the Bible. And the one thing you can see that is common uh, to, to these prayers, they are the exact opposite of how Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies, right? To pray, to view our enemies, to pray for them. We're supposed to pray for them, not against them. We're to love our enemies and pray pray blessing on them. This is the opposite of that. It's a good example of our series last month, that before and after kingdom. We live, you know, it's the before and after understanding of the scripture that we need to have is new covenant uh, Christians, kingdom people. So these prayers are not in the Bible because it's meant to be a model of the words we're supposed to say. We're not to quote these in our, in our prayers. If we were to pray these prayers, we would have to deny Jesus, basically. We would have to deny Jesus to pray these. The words of these prayers were in the Bible and are still in the Bible as a testament to how God has always been the merciful one. He's always been the one revealed on the cross. Our God is the one, he's always been the one who's willing to stoop as low as he needs to stoop to meet us exactly where we are. This outburst that we see from the psalmist, it's in the Bible to remind us of how much God wants us to come to him with our true face. He really does. Not the false face of how you're supposed to act and how you're supposed to be feeling, but the face of the child that God knows good and well you really are, right? This is the face of the child who comes inside with dirt on her face because she fell. The face of the child that comes inside with the tears still stre- you know, staining the cheeks because the kids outside made him so mad he wanted to punch him. God does not want us to come to him with a mask on. He is our father. He doesn't need our mask to please him. He, does, he wants us to come to him and trust He needs our our faith, which means trusting him enough to show him what is going on inside of us. And so God preserves and has preserved throughout our our history in in our our Bibles. He's preserved these ugly prayers. These are diabolical, I would say, anti-Christ prayers. 
not as a prescription for what we are to say, but as a testament to the honesty that we can come to God with. And folks, if God can hear a prayer like these, do you think we ever need to worry about praying the wrong prayer? You see, the the bar is pretty low. He set the bar pretty low for us kids. He loves the honesty. My favorite example of this is in the book of Job. Uh, If you know the story of Job, uh, uh, scholars say that the book of Job is the earliest of all the writings in the Old Testament. It's written first. And uh, Job is a story of a man who gets caught in the crossfire uh, of this verbal spiritual warfare between uh, God and Satan. And as a result, Satan comes and, and unleashes everything and kills Job's family, he destroys all his property, afflicts him with this painful disease. And at first, Job's reaction to this is kind of pious. You might recognize these words. He says, oh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. What's interesting is some Christians, we, we still quote this verse, and we even sing it now on, uh, on the radio as though the book of Job were affirming this um, as correct theology. I, I would submit to you, in fact, the, the entire book is part uh, of disproving this. It, it shows that this is part of a wrong theology that the whole book actually disproves, that what Job learns is that God is not uh, the author of suffering. The devil is. And Job, uh, if you, what scholars tell us is he's, he, this is written so early. This is written before the, the law, the Torah, all this kind of stuff. This is written before people really had a knowledge of even the devil, that there was a devil. And so Job assumes everything that is happening is God, is God doing it. Um, but we've kind of taken this to be correct theology. And so some people still pray it. And then now, you know, hit song on KSBJ. Uh, we still sing it. But regardless, you find this refrain, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And it shows up throughout the book of Job. But what happens is as pain, the pain of what's happened to him eats away at his spirit. Job gets more and more raw. Um, it's like he goes through the stages of grief in this story, and he gets more angry with God. Uh, and, and now, over and over, the same concept is expressed, but increasingly in harsh terms, uh, to the point where Job kind of borders on blasphemy. So later in chapter 9, he's saying this, It's all the same. That's why I say God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He's just arbitrary. When a scourge brings sudden death, God mocks the despair of the innocent. And do we think that's a theology that describes Jesus? No, of course not. He says, when a land falls into the hands of the wicked, later he says, when the rich gobble up the lands of the poor, God blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Job's assuming that God is this puppeteer God who just pulls all the strings like this masochistic Machiavellian sort of deity and he blames God for everything but it's not correct theology and then in verse 16 he says God assails me and tears me in his anger and he gnashes his teeth at me right this picture just he actually calls God his opponent he's got this monster picture of God doesn't he The Lord gives and the Lord takes, but now it's not so pious sounding, is it? It's vicious. Is this good theology? Not at all. But this is where Job's at. This is the stage he's at. Towards the end, 
He says, you turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up, drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But now it doesn't sound so pious. Job now, now Job is raging. He, he virtually identifies God with Satan. Now here's the curious part. Here's what's interesting. When God eventually shows up, and the book of Job is this beautiful, oh, it's such a brilliant piece of storytelling. It's set up in these just alternating monologues between Job, Job and his, his friends. He's got these three friends that are trying to make sense of the whole situation, uh, accusing Job, you know, of like, you must have done something wrong to deserve all this. And then there's these monologues where God comes on the scene. And God shows up and he sets everybody straight. And he spends two chapters talking about how little human beings can really understand about creation and the complexity of creation. Um, he spends these two fascinating chapters talking about these, uh, these two cosmic monsters that ancient people believed in, Leviathan and, and Behemoth. It was their way of personifying chaos and evil, this Leviathan and Behemoth. And what God is saying here is there's no way. He's like, kids, there's no way you can fathom why evil happens the way it does. And it's not because my character is unclear. I mean, God's character is the one thing we can be clear on. He exemplified it perfectly on the cross. God is all loving. We know that. What can't, we can't fully understand, God is telling us, is the complexity of creation. Uh, the, the demonic forces that afflict creation. The five trillion little variables that go into, that are behind every single event. And so God is saying to Job and his friends, you know, when it comes to the problem of evil, you guys are in over your head. You don't know enough to run your mouth off the way, like, like you have. And then Job gets it. And it says in, in chapter 42, Job says in chapter 42, he says, I uttered things I did not understand. And he gets that he was arrogant. He was angry. He had no right to blame God for anything. And it says that he repents in dust and ashes. And he turns from his anger but now here's the really, really interesting part. The very next verse, the Lord shows up. After this, the Lord said these, after he said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, this is one of Job's two, uh, three friends. Like I said, they, they were sitting there kind of like blaming Job. You must have done something wrong. And he says to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. God has just corrected Job for painting God out to be a monster. So what's he mean by this? The truth about me. When the Lord says, you didn't speak true about me what is true, the word here in the Hebrew is this word kun. Kun, and it means to be in alignment. And it can mean to be in alignment with reality, with the truth. Uh, but God can't mean that Job was in good alignment with reality because Job just has repented for his theology. He just recognized I was wrong about all that. But what this word can also mean in the Hebrew is that you align with your heart. This word means, in other words, honesty. It's aligning with your own heart. And what God is saying here is, Eliphaz, you and your two friends, I'm angry with you because you didn't talk straight with me or with Job. You didn't speak honestly from your heart 
as my servant Job did. And Job's friends, when you look, go back and look at the passages where they write, uh, you read about this throughout the book, they speak out of their fear. What they're speaking out is, out of it is their, their piety, their certainty. Uh, this, they have this concrete religious dogma that they cling to. And it was a very self-serving formulaic theology, right, that gave them a feeling of security uh, in their right because of their righteousness. And, they, and, and in this theology, there was no room for good things happening to bad people. Because they were like, well, if you're, if you're good, you get blessed. And if you're, you got it coming to you, you get cursed. And that was, it was airtight. And they were not speaking out of honesty. And, and it's whatever that theology, you've got, you got, you get victim blaming, which unfortunately still happens in the church today, which is tragic, but it still is. We get victim shaming, which is exactly what they do to Job. And God is furious with this. He's furious. And he says, you didn't talk honestly. You weren't real. You didn't honestly wrestle with what you could see with your own eyes happening right in front of you, and that is a righteous man suffering. But Job was honest about it. Job knew he hadn't done anything wrong, and he was raging. And that's why Job is called a servant of God. And that's why the story of Job ultimately it vindicates the character of God which is the point of the whole book. Job says some really nasty things. He says some raw things. He says it out of pain and woundedness, even some things that would be, we would say is sinful. And he's proven factually wrong. He had his facts wrong. But one thing Job has going for him is he was honest. He was honestly wrong. He was raw before God. And whatever was really going on on the inside, he trusted in his relationship with God enough to, to just rip his heart open and show it to God. Folks, if God loves this kind of praying, if he loves the kind of praying that Job did and the psalmist did, do you think you ever need to worry about praying the wrong kind of prayer? About the rules of saying it just right? I would just point out one of the things that strikes me so when I look at the life of Jesus is the night before he's crucified, he is in the garden and he is praying. And his prayer looks very different from what I would, might imagine the Son of God would be praying before the big moment. You do not see Jesus going, all right, here comes the crucifixion. I'm excited. Here it comes. It's going to be great. I'm fine with it. Everything's going to be good. I'm happy. Yeah, bring it. No, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is in travail. He tells his friends, please, would you just stay up and pray with me a few more hours? He begs God, the Father, if there's any way around this, please do it. Nevertheless, your will. He sweats blood. It says he sweats blood. Our Lord is in travail. And what is God's response? He doesn't, he doesn't make the cross go away. But it says that the Lord sends angels to minister to him. Jesus is honest with the Father. And the Father sends him angels. He doesn't change the course of history, but he does change the prescription. 
And he sends angels and they comfort Jesus. And the next scene we see with Jesus is a very different sort of Jesus. He's a Jesus who's very present, who knows what he's there to do, who heals the servant with his ear cut off, and he accepts everything that's happening to him. A Jesus that walks in the kind of faith we would expect Jesus to walk in because he allowed God to minister to him. I don't know if that would have happened. I don't know if the angels would have come if Jesus had just said, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, everything's great. (laughs) Not feeling it at all. I want to finish with a quote uh, on the, the late 20th century theologian and poet Thomas Merton. I heard this in a sermon uh, last week, and I was like, that is exactly what I need to say today. Thomas Merton says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man I, wanna, I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown by God is altogether too much privacy. How great is that? My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love. And that is outside of reality and outside of life. Folks, there's, there's no room in Christ's kingdom for false faces. There's no room for it. If Jesus were to tell us right now, I've got one dress code for my heaven. It's no masks. It's no makeup. We have to come to him as we are. There's only one way to talk to the omniscient Jesus who knows you more than you maybe even wish he did, but he does. There's only one way to talk to him, and that's praying without a filter. Praying without a filter. It's not your messiness that is going to offend God. Do you know if there's anything that insults God, it would be the absurdity of trying to hide something from him. How would it hurt you if one of your children were afraid of you too much to tell you how they felt? The absurdity of trying to hide something from God, that that surely is insulting. Of trying to present to our creator uh, a false, holier-than-thou self. Are we serious? Or to try to keep to ourselves in like a hidden place something for ourselves. Oh no, to be unknown by God is entirely too much privacy. It's the prayer of faith that moves mountains. The prayer of faith. And you can't pray in faith when you don't really trust the one you're praying to with your real self. We got to trust him. We got to trust him. So fellow image bearers of God here this morning, may we pray like warriors who believe that everything is at stake. And may we trust in the God who partners with us when we come to him without a filter, without fear, without artifice. It may be raw. It may be messy. But it's the real you he loves. It's that, that's the you he died for. Yeah. That's the you he wants to get to know. He wants to hold in his arms. It's the real you. And by the way, do you know what God does when we come to him like that? Here's how good he is. He accepts us just as we are. He accepts us as we are. And then he gently and lovingly promises to mold us and to mature us 
So he accepts us as we are, but then he grows us up. And he reveals more and more of himself, just as he did to Job. You notice, at God, uh, Job knows God much better at the end of his story than he, than he did at the beginning. At the beginning of the story, he says Job was a righteous man. He was an upright man. He did all the right things. He was a good guy. But did he know God? Not till he went through the pain. He went through the struggle. And he knew God better than ever. And so we learn that we can, we can trust God. And God turns out to not be the God that we feared he might be. And so when we let God see that, we, let, we bring our true selves to God. And then we let him start to mold us. What naturally, eventually does happen to our prayers is that the prayers start to look less like David and Job's and Sonny's. They will. And they will start to look more like children who trust that their father has their best in mind. But it's only when we invite him into those dark corners. We give him a chance to shine the light in the darkness and to start to grow us out of that darkness. I want to challenge us this week. If you're not doing this already, just an easy, short challenge. Just carve out a space this week, every day. Even if it's the first 10 minutes of your day, I find that the, the very beginning of the day is the easiest for me. Try this. This may feel really dangerous for some of you, but take 10 minutes and just be completely honest with God. Just let him see everything inside of you, the real you offered to the real God. I, I'm guessing there's going to be no lightning that strikes you. You might even find some freedom. You might find God revealing himself a little bit more to you. Because that, folks, is what makes a praying church. That, that makes a praying church that prays kingdom prayers that partner with God to bring his will into being on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you, God, for everybody in this auditorium, everybody who's listening uh, through the podcast or whatever it means. I pray, Lord God, that you seal this on our heart with a conviction of the Holy Spirit to be a people who are just ruthlessly raw. Help us to be ruthlessly honest before you and with one another. I thank you, God, for being a God who's bigger than all of our sin, that your light outshines all of the darkness. You love us as we are. You talk to us as we are so that you can transform us into the people that you know we can be. We praise you for that. And in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, stand to your feet as our prayer partners are coming down forward right now. If there's anything you need prayer about, don't hold back. Come forward. Let these guys pray with you in faith. And if you'd like to send us your prayer request, there's a lot of different ways you can send us your prayer request uh, electronically. You can text it to us. You can email it to us. You can use the church app, however you want to do it. We want to be praying with you about this stuff. Amen. So my friends, may you go forth and pray effectual, fervent, and honest prayers, the kind of prayers that move mountains, the kind of prayers that avail much. Amen. Because you have a Father in heaven who knows you completely, and he loves you anyway. Amen? Grace and peace. Bye-bye.